morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And you know, I, just yesterday, I got another message via Instagram. One of the students that was in my small group there in Pogradec, Albania, um, found me on Instagram, sent me a direct message and said, hey, Mark, I don't know if you remember me. Of course I remember her. Um, she was in my small group. There were only like five of them. But um, it, she said, hey, I just wanted you to know I've decided to give my life to Jesus, and I'm going to get baptized in August. And I just wanted you to know. Thank you for coming. And... Yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming and letting me know that God loves me, that God loves me. It's beautiful. The gospel is a beautiful thing. So thank you again for um, supporting us as we, we went to Albania on that trip. Well, today we're going to jump back into our sermon series through the New Testament book of First Peter. It's a, a series that we've given the subtitle, Faithful Living in a Foreign World. And since so many of you have been traveling and um, we skipped a week last week to give an uh, update on our Albania trip, I, I'd like to start off this morning by giving you just a little bit of a review of where we've been. In his letter, Peter is, is teaching us what it means to live as elect exiles. He, he addresses his original audience as elect exiles right from the get-go. Well, what does that mean? That means that we are chosen by, by God, but we're rejected by the world. People um, who choose to follow Jesus with their lives end up being strangers in this world, exiles, foreigners. Faithful Christians should expect to be misunderstood, marginalized, even mistreated as we intentionally live differently than the world around us. And you might say, well, Mark, that doesn't sound like much fun. And you'd be right. Which is why Peter reminds us and he calls us to a bigger purpose behind why we should live differently. And that so that others will see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he says, you've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's a, there's a greater purpose beyond and behind, behind our suffering, and that is so that we can be the living proof of a loving God everywhere we go. And so that people can see in us a reflection of God's character and go, aha, that's what a loving God is like. Hey, will you introduce me to him? That's the purpose behind all of this. And Peter's careful to remind his original readers and us of that greater purpose. Also in the early chapters of his letter, Peter warns us of two temptations that we'll inevitably face, both individually and corporately, as we seek to follow Jesus in a foreign world. Two, two things, two temptations that could derail that greater purpose of calling people out of darkness into wonderful light. The first temptation, we, we labeled it as syncretism. Syncretism, to blend in, to take the posture of a chameleon, when a defensive posture of chameleon that blends in with its environment when it's threatened. To compromise morally, go with the flow of our culture so that we don't stand out. That, that's one great temptation that the individual Christians and groups of Christians have faced throughout the ages. There's an there's a equally dangerous and opposite temptation and that's that of separatism, separatism. To withdraw from any meaningful contact with the world around us, retreat into the protective shells of our Christian subcultures, kind of like a turtle, um, and, and withdraw, retreat, turtle Christianity. But these two temptations we must avoid 
if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus in this world and tangibly, tangibly demonstrate his love to those around us. So Peter pleads with us in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, verses we've already looked at. Dear friends, dear friends, I urge you. Can, can you hear him just pleading? I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Again, he uses that term, those terms. Foreigners, exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Don't compromise. Don't blend in. Don't be a chameleon Christian, in other words. Abstain from those sinful desires. And then he says, live such good lives where? Read it. Where? Among the pagans. Among those who don't believe. Don't be a turtle. Don't don't be separatistic. Live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And the only way that unbelievers are going to come to glorify God on the day Jesus comes back is if they've come to know him through our influence. We are to be the faithful presence of love among those who are yet to believe. We're to live differently as a contrast community. And then beginning in the middle of chapter 2, Peter goes on to outline three areas where believers are to live differently. Those three are this. One, in our citizenship. Secondly, in our vocations. And then thirdly, in our marriages. This is where we're going to be diving in today. Two weeks ago while I was in Albania, Tim Schoenfeld um, took us through those first two areas. He did a great job in his message. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed that. But today we're going to be looking at this third area, marriage. And Peter gives some instructions to his first century audience um, in this category. Now, as we read our passage this morning, it's going to come with a trigger warning, okay? It contains some words that that may cause us as modern American readers to bristle or recoil a bit. Words that in our culture may feel demeaning or patriarchal or disempowering or even regressive. One of the reasons why we choose to preach expositionally as we, we choose to, to go book by book through the Bible. Now, we, we will go topical every once in a while, but one of the reasons why we choose to go through entire books of the Bible is so we can't skip the parts that are difficult to hear in our culture. This morning is going to be one of those mornings where I wish I had gotten a guest speaker. <laughs> but there's good reason that the words in this passage may feel regressive or patriarchal or demeaning, and that's this, because over the years, people have twisted these kinds of words, in this passage in particular, to justify misogyny, to justify abuse. Passages like this have been ripped out of their historical and literary contexts and used to devalue, to disempower, to demean women and to perpetuate patriarchy and female servitude. But one of my goals this morning is to show you that to use this passage in that way is an abuse of the holy word of God. It's twisting. It's distorting. It's ignoring the intended meaning and pressing these words into the justification of abusive power. And if you've been on the receiving end of that type of abuse, where some man or even a pastor has twisted the Bible to justify his selfishness, his abuse, his narcissism, his domineering, his aggression, his bullying, his misogyny, 
What he did was wrong. What he did was unchristian. And he is going to answer to God for that. And I'm so very sorry that you've had to endure that type of abuse. This is the very opposite of God's vision for a mutual, self-giving, self-sacrificial love of Christian marriage that honors, respects, and empowers women. And I hope to show you that these verses aren't oppressive or repressive, but rightfully understood can be life-giving and empowering. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Our passage of scripture is going to be out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray together. Father, guide me as I seek to explain these words. Give us ears to hear what you have to teach us this morning from your word. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's so very important when studying a couple paragraphs of scripture like this uh, to make sure that we read it in, its, in both its broader um, historical and cultural context, as well as its broader literary context. Let's start with the cultural context first. In the first century Roman culture to which Peter was writing, Christianity was looked upon with great suspicion. And here's why. It was viewed as a, a, just a, a, a threat to the very fabric of Roman society. See, early Christians were actually called atheists by the Roman neighbors because they weren't worshiping the Roman gods or the emperor like everyone else. And this new upstart sect, Christianity, that was spreading like wildfire, taught that all people are equal in God's sight. In Jesus, there was neither slave nor free, male nor female, as the Apostle Paul wrote some 10 years earlier than this letter from Peter. And this was radical thinking and a huge threat to the ingrained Roman practice of slavery and also the misogynistic patriarchy of Roman marriages, where women were not equal to men, and the husband had complete autocratic control over what happened in the household. It was a culture of paterfamilia. Um, There's a word you can tuck away there. Uh, Where domestic abuse was viewed as a normative way to get your wife to do what you wanted. This was ugly. This is the culture to which, which Peter is writing into, okay? And so first century Christians in Asia Minor, Peter's original audience, were being accused of being an extremist threat to the basic institutions of the Roman Empire. That's the cultural context. 
The literary context goes back to chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter states this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, though they accuse you of intentionally undermining the very fabric of Roman society, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, it had been easy for first century Christians to begin thinking along these lines. You know, as followers of the way of Jesus, we answer to Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't have to answer. We don't have to honor the pagan emperor. Our king is Jesus. We don't have to obey our pagan masters. Our master is Jesus. We don't have to defer to our pagan husbands. Our bridegroom is Jesus. We're free. We're royalty. We belong to Jesus now. We're freed from all these pagan institutions. It would have been easy for first century Christians to take that attitude. But Peter's reminding them that they are left on this planet for a mission. Marching orders from Jesus. They are to declare the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his wonderful light. They are to point people to Jesus with their conduct, with the way they live their lives. They're to be a light for others so that outsiders, those pre-believers, those, those pagans, as, as Peter calls them in this passage, those Gentile Roman unbelievers would see their good deeds, see a reflection of Jesus in them and come to know Jesus themselves. And this is the impetus behind Peter's exhortation in chapter 2, verse 13, where he commands this. Let's read this out loud together. What does it say? Be subject for the Lord's sake to most human... Sorry, I I missed a word there. What is it? Every human institution. Yes, you are free, Peter says. And he'll go on to say in verse 16, but don't use your freedom to cause trouble. Yes, your king is Jesus. You answer to him alone, but for his namesake, honor the pagan emperor. Yes, your master is Jesus. You follow his orders alone, but for his namesake, honor your pagan masters. Yes, your bridegroom is Jesus. You belong to him alone, but for his namesake, honor your pagan husband. Now, now it's very important to note this. I want you to mishear me here. Peter is not endorsing these abusive power structures. I'll say that again. Peter is not endorsing the abusive power structures in the Roman Empire. He's not endorsing Nero or imperialism as a form of government. He's not endorsing unjust masters or slavery as an institution. He's not endorsing misogynistic pagan husbands or first century Roman patriarchy. In fact, far from endorsing these, he's subtly undermining them at several points. With the logic of this passage, Peter teaches that there's an authority above these earthly authorities. In in 2.14, he says governments exist to punish evil and reward the good. Well, who says what's evil and good? He implies there's a moral standard above governments, that they're ultimately accountable to God. Same thing with masters. When you're treated unjustly, be like Jesus who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. There's one who's going to judge even earthly masters. Chapter 2, verse 23. They will answer to God. Husbands are to treat their wives well or God won't answer their prayers. Chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands are accountable to God. There's an authority above the established authorities in the ancient Roman world that puts a check on the, and an accountability on these authorities that were prone to all kinds of abuses. Furthermore, the trajectory of the gospel 
and all the New Testament writers is toward equality of all people before God. A, a verse I mentioned earlier written by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the New Testament begins to cultivate the kind of soil in which imperialism, slavery, and patriarchy will shrivel and die. Thank God. To follow the ways of Jesus is to view these things as morally bankrupt. But Peter knew that his original audience had no power in their ancient context to change it. They were vastly in the minority. And so how is he, what are they to do? Well, what he is doing is he's instructing them on how to live in it for the greater purpose of seeing people come to know Jesus and find hope for eternity. Peter's not turning a blind eye toward the abuses of these authority structures, but he is saying this. Here's his main message. Voluntarily submit whenever possible. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Voluntarily submit whenever possible for the sake of the gospel. Yes, you're free people, and I want you to exercise that freedom, but I want you to exercise it as Jesus exercised it. And how did Jesus do it? He submitted himself to his earthly authorities in order to bring salvation and redemption into the world. And Peter's saying, I want you to do the same. Submit to the pagan emperor for the sake of the gospel. You may eventually have to defy him. He asks you to do something that God says not to do. You obey God, not him. But whenever possible, submit. Submit to your pagan masters whenever possible for the sake of the gospel. Why submit to your pagan husbands whenever possible for the sake of the gospel. So that's the cultural and literary backdrop for this section of instructions to wives and husbands that we're going to be studying here this morning. So let's now reread the first two verses and dive in, okay? Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So apparently in Asia Minor, many women are accepting the message of the gospel and their husbands are a little slower on the uptake, okay? Which is common even to this day, by the way. And these ladies naturally long for their husbands to come to faith in Jesus. But the question is, how are they best to be won over? How are these believing wives to assert their influence with their husbands in a way that will be effective for the sake of the gospel in their patriarchal culture? The answer, Peter says, is through their conduct. The best influence is not through their words, but through their works along three fronts. First, Peter says, be subject to your own husbands. Not other people's husbands, but your own husbands. In other words, don't defy him. Don't undermine him. Don't cause trouble. That's only going to bolster the narrative that Christians are troublemakers and a danger to society. Don't do that. Don't go around saying, yeah, the husband's the, the head, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head whichever way she wants. You know, it's true, but don't do that, okay? Secondly, Peter says, be respectful, Treat your unbelieving husband with honor. Speak well of him. Become an expert in his strengths and affirm him rather than harping on his weaknesses. So thirdly, Peter says, be pure. Be faithful to him. Be trustworthy. Be true. 
And then Peter also points out two things that won't, win, won't work to win over unbelieving husbands. The first thing that won't work is implied by Peter here, and that's nagging and bugging him to death. Hear this, no husband, no unbelieving husband has been henpecked into the kingdom of God. This never happened. If you're going to win your husband over, it's best to be done without words, letting your character do the talking. Win him with the way you live, your walk rather than your talk. Ladies, if you have an unbelieving husband, the greatest, your greatest influence lies in the integrity of your character. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Then Peter goes on to expound on another thing that won't work to win over an unbelieving husband in verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. In other words, ladies... You shouldn't be trying to win over your unbelieving husbands only through your sex appeal either. That may succeed in temporarily manipulating him to get you to do uh, what you want, maybe even come to church with you, but it objectifies you and will ultimately succeed in making him interested in Jesus. It might make him interested in something else, but likely not Jesus. Now, these verses have been widely misused. Peter's not saying here, ladies, be ugly for Jesus, okay? Be plain and simple and ugly. Don't braid your hair, don't wear jewelry, just look ugly for Jesus. No, that's not what Peter's saying. You know, if, and some, but tragically, some Christian sects throughout the years have taken it that way, but they're inconsistent. They're very inconsistent because literally in the Greek it says, your adorning shouldn't be the braiding of hair, the wearing of jewelry, the wearing of clothes. They still wear clothes, okay? So that's not the main point, to not do those things. The main point is those shouldn't be the main thing. Those, sh- those things should not be the main way you're trying to make yourself attractive, just through the externals. There's nothing wrong with looking nice, ladies. But that shouldn't be the main, that shouldn't be the main source of your beauty. So in summary, wives are not to attempt to nag or seduce their husbands into the kingdom of God. Peter's words here are a clear and straightforward call for ladies to lay aside their natural abilities to manipulate, to put down that feminine toolbox, so to speak. If you want your man to be compelled by the gospel and pulled away from the pagan gods he's worshiping, don't henpeck him. Don't use sex as a weapon. Don't manipulate him. That's what Peter's saying here. If he senses that he's being manipulated, he's going to resent you. If he's weak, he may actually comply. But he doesn't really mean it, and that's not what you want. So here's how to do it, Peter says. Catch his attention with real beauty. A gentle and quiet spirit, thoughtfulness, kindness, gentleness, an inner elegance that's tranquil and poised and confident, not insecure and anxious about external appearances. 
External beauty is only skin deep. It's of great worth in the world's eyes, but it's not of great worth in God's sight. He looks at the internal. He looks at the heart. And what's of great worth in God's sight is the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, why is that internal beauty and great worth of great worth in God's sight? Well, because it's a reflection of the character of Jesus, who self-identified as being gentle and humble in heart. Ladies, can your husband see a reflection of Jesus in you? That's where true beauty comes from. That's what will win an unbelieving husband over. Okay, quick caveat. Having a gentle and quiet spirit has oftentimes been misused as well. This does not mean, ladies, that you're to be a doormat that remains silent and never speaks up. And if you've been told that, flush that out of your mind because it's heresy, okay? It's not right. No, a gentle and quiet spirit simply means this. It's a poised, peaceful, non-anxious spirit that voluntarily chooses not to use manipulation as a weapon to get what you want. That puts aside the feminine toolbox and says, I'm not gonna manipulate to get my needs and my wants met. That's a gentle and quiet spirit. Men, believe me, you do not want a silent wife. You need one who speaks up. For instance, Meredith sees me at my weakest moments. And I can't be all that God wants me to be. Sorry. I can't be all that God wants me to be without Meredith speaking up and saying, Mark, you blew it. When you responded that way, it wasn't consistent with God, what God calls you to. I need her not to be silent in my life. I need her to have strength and a spine that speaks truth to me as a husband. Having a quiet spirit does not equal silence. Then in verse five, Peter gives three for these, sorry, can't read through watery eyes. Okay, in verse five, Peter gives these first generation Christian Gentile wives an example to follow. Let's read this together, verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, is anyone else scared for me as I try to explain these verses? Um, they, they, are, they are some, thank you, Lee. They are some difficult ones, but, but here's what you need to know, okay? First, by having these Gentile women who are married to unbelieving husbands identify them with Sarah in the Old Testament, Peter is telling them that they are firmly within the covenant family of God. Abraham and Sarah are like Christian royalty, right? They're the original patriarch and matriarch of the faith through whom the covenant of God to bless the world with the gospel originally flowed. Gentile ladies, you are Sarah's children. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear, well, what fear? The fear of not getting what you need or want if you don't take matters into your own hands. The, the fear of, of setting aside your feminine manipulation toolbox. Because let's be honest, 
to, to submit and to lay aside your natural ability to manipulate your husband in order to get your needs and wants met is a frightening place to be. Putting your hope in God to meet your needs rather than your female toolbox of manipulation is scary. It's an act of trust in God. Now that being said, what on earth is up with Sarah calling Abraham her Lord, okay? And when we read that, I, I could tell as many of you ladies, uh-uh, no, oh, no, not gonna do that. Um, okay, well, hear me out here. What you need to know is that this is a reference to just one verse in the Old Testament, one verse in the Old Testament. There's only one time where we read that Sarah uttered this word in reference to Abraham, and she was not talking to him. She was talking about him in in an interesting passage. And I I think it's interesting that that Peter references this. I think there's a reason why he does it, um, because it's not really a big deal. But if you want to look this up later, go to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12. And you'll find in the context that Sarah's eavesdropping on a conversation that Abraham's having. You see, um, uh, some visitors came to, to where they were living, um, and it's a theophany. A theophany is the physical appearance of God in the Old Testament, okay? So a theophany, God impersonated, is talking to Abraham in that passage, and he's announcing to Abraham, you and Sarah, by this time next year, are going to give birth to a son. Now, they're old. They're like 80 or older. <laughs> Sarah's long past menopause, they're long past childbearing years, and Sarah's listening to this. She's eavesdropping on this, and she laughs out loud and says this, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have the pleasure of having a child? <laughs> That's where she calls Abraham Lord. Okay? It's an off-the-cuff remark where, where she's basically calling Abraham an old codger in the same breath. She's simply using the term my Lord here as an endearing token of respect. Using it at the same time that she's sort of poking fun at Abraham's old age, even laughing to herself about it. So in making reference to this rather obscure Old Testament scene, Peter is not communicating that wives are to be somehow subservient to their husbands by formally addressing them as Lord or Master. So guys, if you're expecting that, sorry, that's, you're not going to hear that from me today, okay? No, he's simply reiterating that wives should treat their husbands with innate respect like Sarah did with Abraham. She's instinctively honoring him and respecting him, respecting her husband, even in an off-the-cuff remark to herself where she's poking fun at him and laughing about his old age and hers. So here's the takeaway. Wives, fearlessly influence your husbands by deference, integrity, and honor for the sake of the gospel. Would you say that out loud with me? Wives, Fearlessly influence your husbands by deference, integrity, and honor for the sake of the gospel. Okay, that wraps up Peter's instructions to wives. And now let's look at his words to husbands in verse 7. Likewise, husbands. So notice that this verse begins with the word likewise, okay? It's probable here that Peter is now primarily addressing believing husbands who have married unbelieving wives or who have wives who are unbelieving, who haven't come to faith yet. 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. How should believing husbands, or even husbands in general, um, act? Um, How should believing husbands win over their unbelieving wives, or if they even have a believing wife? That's what I meant to say. Well, in first century Roman culture, for a husband to get his wife to do what he wanted, it was common practice to simply use physical force, physical strength to beat her into submission. This was the common cultural accepted practice. It was completely normal and ordinary in that paterfamilia culture to do that. The worldly advice to husbands would have been this. Oh, she's not worshiping your God? Well, you better put her in her place, buddy. Man up. Beat her into submission. Drag her to church. Now, for us who live in a culture that was founded with a Christian ethic, this this type of barbaric treatment of women is unthinkable, and it should be. But what you need to know is that it's unthinkable for us primarily because of the cultural influence of Christianity. Christianity is actually what made this unthinkable. Now, how are believing husbands to influence their unbelieving wives? Peter says, not by beating them, but the opposite, by honoring them, living with them in an understanding way. This is totally countercultural in this first century context. You've got to understand that. This is blowing categories. It's just common sense for us, but this is very, very countercultural for Peter's audience. Literally in Greek, the, the verse reads, live with your wives according to knowledge. Really get to know her, her likes, her dislikes, her preferences, her passions. What causes her stress? How does she relax? How does she need to be loved? What are her fears? What are her insecurities? What are her talents? How, how are those talents best unleashed? What is her opinion? Hear it, listen to it, elicit it. What does she dream about? Guys, this involves empathy, thoughtfulness, gentleness, consideration, listening, putting down the remote, listening. Peter goes on to say that husbands are also to honor their wives as the weaker vessel. That might have raised some few, a few eyebrows. Well, vessel here is merely a reference to the physical body, okay? All vessels can break. But women's bodies generally aren't as heavy duty of vessels as men's bodies because the simple biological fact they don't have as much testosterone testosterone coursing through their veins. This verse isn't saying that women are inferior. It's simply referring to the average physical strength and nothing else. It's the reason why we have men's sports and women's sports in the Olympics. So these words from Peter are a direct prohibition to husbands against using their physical strength and size to bully and control their wives, as was common in the Roman Empire. And as was predicted in Genesis chapter 3, where God comes into the garden and outlines what life is going to be like now that brokenness and sin has entered the world. And he's talking to Eve and he says, your desire will be for your husband. And it's not talking about sexual desire, especially in that context. Oh, uh, because the next phrase is, but he will harshly dominate you. He'll rule over you, you know. Shut up and bring me a sandwich. Oh, I'm so sexually attracted to you. No, that's not what's going on. Um, 
it's not talking about sexual desire. It says your desire will be for your husband. The next chapter talks about that same word is used and it's about sin desiring to master you, but you must master it. What, what God is saying there and predicting there is you are going to want to control and manipulate and rule over your husband, but he is going to rule over you based on his physical strength and harshly dominate you. And that's going to be the pattern throughout history in male-female relationships in marriage. Not a prescription of what should be, but a description of what now is that sin has entered into the world. Instead of ruling together with mutual submission and love and deference, the wife and the husband are now going to try to rule over each other. But the general rule is that the husband wins because of the testosterone in his veins. It's tragic. Sorry, I got sidetracked off my notes here. And then Peter gives this countercultural reasoning for this prohibition for husbands to use their superior physical strength. And he, he gives this reason. For she is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life, an heir with you, totally contrary to Roman thought. She's not a belonging that you have. She is not some plaything for your pleasure. She is not your property. She is a precious daughter of the king, a co-heir with you. She is your equal, and you better not put your hand on her, because if you do, God's going to turn his back on you and won't listen to your prayers. You want to know how serious God is about protecting his daughters? Men, if you bully your wife, if she cowers in front of you, if you use your size to intimidate her, if you use your strength to corner her, if you raise your voice to silence her, God says, I'm against you, boy. You're not a man. I'm against you. I am not going to be listening to your prayers. You're not submitting to me. You're not submitting to government authorities. You're not submitting to anyone. And you need to repent. You're acting like your own God. And I'm not going to listen and tell you, repent. Guys, if that's you, you do need to repent now and get help. There's nothing manly in what you're doing. It's sin, it's wrong, and you will answer to God. And he has lightning bolts. And if you're a woman in a marriage or even a dating relationship where you're being physically abused or intimidated or manipulated, bullied, cornered, hear me. You are not locked into being beat up and bullied. You do not owe that man submission. You are not biblically bound to that man. He has forfeited what is due him by his own lack of submission to God and to the laws of our land. And let me as your pastor be the one who says, get out. Get out. You should leave, and we as the church will help you. Please reach out. Please reach out. This passage of scripture does not promote male domination and female servitude. It's a gross misuse and a twisting of this text. So in summary, here's the second takeaway. 
of the instructions to husbands. Husbands, use your strength to empathize with, honor, and ennoble your wives for the sake of the gospel. Use your strength to empathize with, honor, and ennoble your wives for the sake of the gospel. So why are husbands and wives to treat each other with mutual respect and honor and love? So that the world would know the love of God. So that the world will see a tangible picture of it in our marriages and the way that we treat each other. Christian marriages are meant to be relationships of of mutual deference and submission. Front row seats for putting the gospel on display. This is all about living honorably so that outsiders will see our good deeds and be led to Jesus. Now, I wish I had time to unpack this further and take us to Ephesians 5, um, where this is even more beautifully laid out, um, where, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives submit husbands' love. The, the command to husbands is even a stronger form of submission there and service. I don't have time to go there. Uh, I'd encourage you to, maybe for some homework, go and, and read Ephesians 5. But in closing, as the worship team comes back up to the stage, let me say two things. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom who used his strength to honor us in our weakness. He laid down his life for us. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Jesus is also the perfect model of submission who deferred to his father with all respect and purity, with a gentle and quiet spirit who said, not my will, but yours be done. And he did it so that you and I might be co-heirs with him of the grace of life. Not only now, but forevermore. Be like Jesus. And it's only when our hearts are captured by the wonder and the beauty and the submission and the honor and the self-sacrificing, giving love of Jesus in the gospel that we'll ever be able to begin to love one another rightly in our marriages. So help us, God. Pray with me. Father, this is a difficult passage. It confronts the selfishness and the me-first attitude of our culture. The non-submissive attitude of our culture in both men and women. Father, you call us to something different. You call us to reflection of the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of our Savior. A love that we've tasted a love that has begun to change us from the inside out. And so, Father, as in our marriages, in any relationship that we have, Lord, may we be people who reflect the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. And we invite you to continue your, your um, work project in all of our hearts sanding off the rough edges, chiseling away, forming us, shaping us, molding us into the image of your son, in whose name we pray and in whose name we have hope.